Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Anchorage, Alaska. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, the Paycheck Protection Program was designed to save jobs at organizations that didn't have the money to pay for its staff. But some churches and Christian ministries that are flush with cash took the money anyway. We'll take a closer look. Also on today's program, the Wheaton College chaplain that was fired last week is this week answering the charges against him. And today's generous living story is about a Silicon Valley couple that is giving away one of the most coveted prizes of living in Silicon Valley, equity in the companies that they're helping to build. We begin today with a story just mentioned about the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, It struck me as strange, Natasha, that Relentless Church in Greenville, South Carolina, took more than a million dollars in funds from the Paycheck Protection Program because recently we had done a story about the pastor of that church, John Gray. He's known for his lavish lifestyle, and he recently bought his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini as an anniversary gift. And if he can do that, you do have to wonder if his church really needs those taxpayer dollars. Yeah, that's right. So we decided to dig a little bit more deeply into the data released last week by the Small Business Administration. What did you find? Well, Gray's Relentless Church is not alone. Religious organizations, including churches and Christian nonprofits, received at least $6 billion in COVID relief funds, those so-called PPP funds. Now, I want to say that plenty of ministry experts, including conservatives who are generally opposed to taking government funds for church and ministry work, believe that it is okay for ministries to take PPP funds. We consulted with a number of them. They include Marvin O'Leary with World Magazine, John Stemberger, who runs the Florida Family Policy Council, and Russell Moore with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, They all say that there's nothing wrong with taking those funds if you need it. However, in order to get the PPP funds, an applicant has to affirm, and I'm quoting from the application now, current economic uncertainty makes this loan request necessary to support the ongoing operations of the applicant. Well, it's hard to see how a pastor who can afford a $200,000 Lamborghini would need government funds to support ongoing operations. Yeah, that's why we took a closer look at the list of churches and ministries that received at least $2 million to see if there really was a need. Can you give us a few examples? Yeah, well, Elevation Church, for example, received between $2 million and $5 million in PPP funds, despite generating more than $91 million in revenue last year and generating more than $24 million in profit. Now, I use the word profit a little bit loosely here. Uh, Revenue less expenses is the right word because, of course, these are nonprofit organizations. The assets of the Charlotte-based megachurch exceeded $114 million at the end of 2019. 
Now, another ministry that we looked at was Ligonier Ministries. Uh, They also took more than $2 million in PPP funds. Though significantly smaller than Elevation, they had revenue in 2017 of $31 million. That's the last year for which we have data available. But the profit margin for Ligonier was significantly greater even than Elevation. They made $9.4 million on that $31 million in revenue. Ligonier also spent $4.2 million on fundraising. Uh, Now, that was a number that was 13% of its total revenue. Summit Church and Redeemer Presbyterian Church are two pretty well-known churches. Summit Church is led by J.D. Greer, who is the um, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and of course, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York uh, had as its longtime pastor, Tim Keller. Both of those organizations took at least $2 million in PPP funds, and both of those organizations had more than $8 million in revenue minus expenses, better known as profit, uh, in 2019 and 2018, respectively. Well, it's hard to understand how these organizations who seem to be pretty well fixed need this cash. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Though I should point out that not all of the ministries receiving PPP funds were flush with cash, as those that I've just mentioned. Willow Creek Community Church and Mariner's Church in California are two churches that are fairly large, but uh, also are experiencing pretty significant losses. For example, Willow Creek uh, had expenses that exceeded its revenue by nearly $18 million in 2018, Uh, though I should say that Willow Creek still has assets that approach $200 million. And Mariner's Church, the California church, um, also lost a good bit of money last year, uh, $6.9 million. Uh, Now, despite that significant loss, though, Mariner's Church, too, has a lot of assets on its balance sheet, more than $100 million. All of this is very fascinating. And I assume that there's more. Yeah, there is. And we've got it all up at the Ministry Watch website. And I should mention that we're also preparing a list of all evangelical ministries and churches that took more than $150,000 in funds. Uh, That will be our monthly list for the month of August. So stay tuned for that. We'll have that up in another week or 10 days. Up next, Warren, is a new story about a ministry that we've covered before, and that's Andrew Womack Ministries. Yeah, Andrew Womack Ministries uh, is in Colorado Springs, Colorado, actually in Woodland Park, which is just outside of Colorado Springs. And, uh, you know, we've written about them before. Andrew Womack is sort of a prosperity gospel preacher. Uh, he's also been someone who's called the COVID virus a hoax, a liberal hoax to be specific, and he claimed that it would disappear by March. Uh, He also dismissed its risks to both him and other true believers and said that he could never picture Jesus wearing a mask. But now the ministry may be facing legal trouble after Womack disobeyed Colorado state mandates limiting crowd sizes to 175 people and also refusing to honor a cease and desist order issued by the Attorney General of Colorado. Uh, Womack was hosting a conference uh, that had between 300 and 500 people. It was called the Summer Family Bible Conference at Karis Bible College, uh, which is, as I said, over the mountains from Colorado Springs. And he says that this order is a violation of his constitutional right to peaceably assemble. 
Yeah, he does. Uh, Womack, uh, who had threatened to resist crowd size orders for months, now uh, has uh, turned this into a legal battle. He's asked for help from the Conservative Liberty Council, which describes the battle in pretty dramatic language. In fact, I'm going to read uh, from a press release that the Liberty Council put out. Power drunk governors and other state officials are resorting to bullying tactics to silence churches and houses of worship. Throughout history, tyrants have targeted followers of God, and the state of Colorado is trying to shut down Womack's Bible conferences. Oh, that is very dramatic. So what's happening now? Well, an official with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment told the Colorado Springs Gazette that they'll be monitoring the situation and evaluating legal options, which can include further enforcement of the cease and desist orders through court action. But I should say that within a couple of days after all of this sort of unfolded, Womack canceled a subsequent conference, a Kingdom Youth Conference that was scheduled for this past weekend. And I should also say that one of the people that was at his earlier conference, the Family Bible Conference, has in fact tested positive for COVID-19. Well, not all Christian ministries are protesting these restrictions, of course, and some are actually using this time as an opportunity for ministry. And you had a story this week about a church on the west side of Chicago that's doing just that. Yeah, it's Grace and Peace Church on the west side of Chicago, as you mentioned. They began to hear that congregants who were losing their jobs and struggling financially uh, as the city was closing non-essential businesses were facing more than just these economic and physical challenges, but emotional challenges as well. Uh, They were anxious about their exposure to the virus, especially those that were considered essential workers. They were being forced to stay apart from family members so they didn't risk bringing the virus home. Some of them, of course, had lost loved ones to COVID-19. So what this church has done is stepped up its counseling ministry. Uh, Sandra Maria Van Opstel, who leads the counseling ministry, at that church said that mental health issues are becoming almost as significant as physical health concerns as the COVID crisis drags on. And Jamie Atten, who is the director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, also in the Chicago area, told Religion News Service that congregations now are helping people with a wide range of mental health challenges. So what types of issues are churches and ministries seeing right now? Well, they're seeing more depression, anxiety, grief, and addictions. Now, one of the things you've got to remember, uh, Natasha, is that, you know, there are a lot of folks that are involved in 12-step programs, which involve weekly, sometimes daily meetings that they're, uh, in some cases, not able to attend now. And, of course, those support groups, those support meetings that they've been attending can be have a real big impact on them and, and uh, the emotional support that they were getting there. There's also child abuse and domestic violence situations that have been cropping up as well. Now, the number of Americans reporting depression and anxiety symptoms have more than tripled since the beginning of the pandemic, according to data uh, from the Census Bureau. And these are all results of the COVID crisis. Well, you know, Natasha, that's a great question because the number spiked among Asian Americans as they experienced increased racism in the months uh, after the coronavirus first appeared and its origins were identified as being from China. The number have also spiked in the African-American community in the weeks following uh, the George Floyd death. Uh, So it might not all be directly related to the COVID crisis, but the 
quarantine, the fact that we've all been sort of socially isolated has made it tougher to get the kind of support we need to deal with these issues. So Jamie Otten encouraged church leaders and others to get into a rhythm of checking in with um, folks in their lives, especially their church members, look for changes in behavior or red flags that somebody you know, might be experiencing anxiety, depression, or possibly even doing harm to themselves or others. Yeah, that all sounds like very good advice. And you can read this story as well as the link to additional mental health resources at ministrywatch.com. Now, Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, an update on last week's firing of the chaplain at Wheaton College. This week, the chaplain is fighting back. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Anchorage, Alaska. And we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, an update on the story of John Ortberg and his Menlo Park, California church. Yeah, last week, a megachurch pastor, John Ortberg, claimed that his congregation had extensively investigated concerns about his son and found no misconduct. Now, this week, elders at Menlo Church, a Bay Area congregation of 5,000, say that their initial investigation fell short, and they've announced plans for an additional supplemental investigation. Now, Warren, this is a very complicated story that we unpacked a little bit last week. Can you briefly summarize where we are? Yeah, in July of 2018, so that's been two years ago now, uh, John Ortberg's youngest son, who had been volunteering with children at the church and in the community, told his father that he was experiencing what church leaders called unwanted thought patterns of attraction towards minors. Uh, The senior Ortberg, John Ortberg, the pastor of the church, didn't tell church leaders or staff what he had learned from his son, nor did he act to prevent his youngest son from working with children. Well, that's quite bad, Um, but eventually the story did come out. Yeah, it did. And John Orberg was placed on leave last fall after the church leaders learned that he had withheld this information uh, about his son from them, a move that they described as poor judgment and a betrayal of trust. The elders hired an investigator who talked to church staff, but never spoke with Ortberg's son or with any parents of children 
who had contact with him. Uh, the elders also never officially acknowledged the family connections between John Ortberg and the volunteer, they called him, who in fact turned out to be John Ortberg's son, Johnny. The church had consistently defended, though, its investigation as being independent. Well, clearly that was not the case. Yeah, it clearly wasn't the case. You're right. And that's why they're having this new investigation now. Well, we've got another update today, and this one relates to Wheaton College. Yeah, we reported last week that Timothy Blackman, the chaplain at Wheaton College, uh, had been fired. And he says that the allegations that he had sexually harassed Wheaton staff and made inappropriate racial comments are false and taken out of context. He adds that he believes his case has not been fairly adjudicated and that his termination was grossly disproportionate uh, to the nature of the alleged offenses. Or in this case is a bit unusual because Blackman released a lengthy statement with detailed responses to the allegations against him. Yeah, he did. And he sent that statement to our colleague, Julie Royce over at the Royce Report. And with her permission, we've published Blackman's responses on the Ministry Watch website. Well, rather than read the statement, uh, which our listeners can read for themselves, what's the bottom line? Well, the bottom line, I think, is that the chaplain, Tim Blackman, did make some mistakes in judgment, but it's hard to see how they should have risen to the level of firing him. And of course, that's his contention. There's also a bit of a subtext to this story, Natasha, and that is that Philip Riken, the president of Wheaton College, has a reputation of being a conservative, and some observers give him credit for trying to stop a liberal drift at Wheaton College. It was Riken, though, that brought Tim Blackman to the college back in 2015. And in fact, the two are close friends personally and pretty well aligned theologically. So why did Riken fire him? What, what I'm hearing is that the more liberal faculty members have pounced upon this situation, not really to undermine Blackman, but to weaken Riken in his attempts to move the college back towards its biblical and evangelical roots. Fascinating. Orrin, let's look at one more story before we go to another break. Uh, a prominent Southern Baptist church led by a former denominational president is the subject of a lawsuit involving abuse of power and sexual abuse. Yeah, this past Sunday, Steve Gaines, who is the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, announced at the start of the worship service that they had received a complaint, a, a lawsuit had been filed against the church. The lawsuit claims that a former teenage volunteer in the church's child care program had been groomed and later abused by a member of the church staff. Well, you have a statement from the church. I do, and let me read just a portion of it. In May of 2019, a former part-time employee of Bellevue was arrested when police discovered him in a car with a minor off campus. That former employee resigned from his position at Bellevue in March of 2019, two months before his arrest, and the discovery of this illegal relationship. He later pled guilty to criminal conduct in February of 2020. Well, this is really bad, obviously, but what's the significance for us? Well, first, Bellevue has been 
prominent in the Southern Baptist Convention for decades. Gaines, in fact, was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention from 2016 to 2018. Adrian Rogers, who was Gaines' predecessor at the church, is a well-known religious broadcaster. Even though he passed away in 2005, they still re-air his sermons on uh, Christian radio stations around the country. He was also an SBC president and led the church for 33 years. Now, so aside from the prominence, there is also the accusations against the church itself. Uh, The complaint alleges that the church was malicious, reckless, and willful and wanton in the way it dealt with the situation. The complaint says that the abuser here sexually abused the girl both on and off the campus at Bellevue Baptist Church, and he used his position of authority at the church to groom the girl. The lawsuit further claims that the church had been warned about this perpetrator prior to these offenses, but had failed to act. Well, And obviously this church has its side of the story as well. Yeah, it does, though they've been fairly quiet so far, except for the statement that the pastor read on Sunday. Uh, The case is not likely to go to trial uh, before 2021. Well, we're going to take another break, but when we return, the next installment of our Generous Living series. This week, a story of a young Silicon Valley couple who got bit by the giving bug early. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the latest in our Generous Living series. Today's story comes from our new managing editor, Christina Darnell. It highlights Catherine and Eugene Tsai, a young Silicon Valley couple who have made the tough decision to give away one of the main benefits of working at a successful technology company, which is stock in that company. Yeah, Catherine Say's father was an avid stock market investor, so he drilled into her the power of stock ownership and of saving. Uh, Catherine, uh, when she got out of college, got a high-powered job in investment banking and was on her path towards wealth from a pretty early age. Then, she said, she attended a weekend retreat hosted by an organization called Generous Giving. That's a group that helps high-capacity or high-potential donors give away large portions of their wealth. That event is called a Journey of Generosity, or JOG, and she said that attending this JOG jogged her pretty significantly, caused her to shift her mindset and her lifestyle. Soon after that, she met her future husband, Eugene, who was also on a fast track of his own, 
Uh, Catherine told Eugene, though, that if their relationship had any future, he would have to buy into her commitment to radical generosity. And he did. The couple got married in March of 2017, and now they live in San Francisco. Catherine is a senior manager of business development at LinkedIn. I'm sure many of our listeners are probably uh, know all about LinkedIn and have profiles there. Eugene works as the head of channel partnerships and partner development at Square, which is a payment processing company. Those are both pretty well-known companies, and they've got pretty big jobs there. Yeah, that's right. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, one of the benefits of those kinds of jobs is that you get stock ownership. Uh, In fact, uh, there are a lot of companies that, a lot of individuals and companies that consider the uh, equity that you get in these companies at a fairly early stage to be an important part of uh, the compensation. And that's, in fact, what makes this story interesting. Every quarter, Uh, When they get their stock distribution, the SAFE's put half of it into a donor-advised fund. Uh, They say it helps them measure their success not by their net worth, by how much stock or stuff they own, but by how much they're able to give away. That is a wonderful story. Yeah, it is. And they're a remarkable couple as well. Uh, There's a lot more uh, to the story and to this amazing couple that I haven't been able to cover here. But as you said, you can find the story at the Ministry Watch website. We also, by the way, have a link in that story to their presentation at a Generous Giving Conference. And I recommend checking out that video as well. In fact, if you'd like to read more about any of the stories that we discussed on today's program, just go to ministrywatch.com and you'll find them right on the front page. Now, with that, Warren, we need to bring our time together to a close. Do you have any final words? Well, just one. I, I want to thank everyone who contributed to Ministry Watch uh, during our fiscal year-end giving campaign. We met our year-end goal, and we've uh, also already met our July giving goal, even though we're barely at the halfway point of the month. So if you're one of those people who have given to Ministry Watch over the past month, I just want to say thank you very much. We are really grateful. If you would like to know how to join this team of donors, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the Donate tab at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Emily McFarlane Miller, Steve Raby, Julie Royce, and Warren Smith. And thanks to our friends at Religion News Service for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Anchorage, Alaska. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.